Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. I probably won't go COVID specific on the preamble. Please you know don't. I mean? Please don't. <laughs> so, how have you been otherwise, mate? How's work? How's work going for you? Work is work is work is okay. Just to finish the graphic novel with the artist Rick Taylor, not the American Rick Taylor, the Canadian Rick Taylor, and I did uh, silencers with him. And uh, he came up with his dream project. He wanted to do a love letter to. Uh, Queen Street, which is a, a kind of strip of Toronto that runs between University and Spadina, and it was the hub of the art scene in the in the seventies and eighties, and it's where the Silver Snail was. And your, back your comic was. book store, yeah, yeah. And so I, I, he wanted it to be nineteen seventy four. I fought him because I thought, well, no, no, if we move it up to the eighties, so we can do comics and we can do all of that. And he went, no. I know exactly what I want, and uh, he had great reasons, and it it was a dream to write, one of the most fun things I've ever done, and it's about an art student in 1974. It's really an alternate version of, of Rick Taylor and his story, what would ha- what his life would have been if he'd become, gone to art school and become an artist. He's an artist, but he didn't go the traditional route. So that's been good. I've just finished a bunch of pitches and a bunch of TV show stuff. But, you know, it's tough. I mean, I think COVID has been tough on all of yeah, right. the entertainment industries. And I haven't gone to any conventions in, what, a year and a half, two years? Yeah. And that's, of course, where I would keep, keep up with you and with so many other friends in the industry. Of course, mate. Um, I, I mean, I, I, that's a, it's a difference that I've felt keenly because, as you know, for the last 20 years, I've spent my, my life crisscrossing the USA, you know, preaching to the the pop culture faithful, as it were. And a big part of my life is being at San Diego, being at New York Comic Con, being at a bunch of other shows in the States as well. And, uh, and you know, flying the Titan Comics flag and whatnot it, 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 over the last 10 years, that's certainly what I've been doing. And, and it's it's definitely, it's a funny thing happened, and I might even have, have told this story here on the podcast before, but after 20 years of constant travel, suddenly having that grind to a halt at the end of February 2020 was an interesting experience. And a bunch of things went down at work that really slowed down the working experience here in the UK. And so I, I had a whole ton of holiday bank and whatnot, so I took some time off while things were slow. I would say that suddenly at a certain point, round about June 2020, I began to feel really physically different how I'd felt for a long time and and but I couldn't figure out what it was at first and and then I realized it was that I was caught up on my sleep and I wasn't constantly tired and I was actually I woke up in the morning feel, feeling well rested you know and I'd walk around the neighborhood and I I've lived in the same part of West London for a very long time but 
I, I never really knew. It was almost like a visitor in my own borough outside of the things I did with my kids when they were growing up. You know, I, I really didn't know, you know, my part of London that well. I know it like the back of my hand now. and uh, But it was so interesting. And actually, I got to this almost Zen-like point where I felt good about it all about six months in. About 15 months in, it's not quite the same. Now I'm kind of itching to get on that plane and start traveling and seeing all my old friends in the US and whatnot. Yeah, it, that part of discovering your neighborhood is so crucial. That's exactly what happened to me. And, you know, my life for you know so long has been getting on the subway, going to work, working, coming home. And there was a big chunk of the day that was all about work. And then I would come home and I would have dinner and then I would read, but I very seldom, maybe on the weekends, I would venture out. But about four or five years ago, I was talking to a friend and he said, you know what? You really need to walk more. You need to walk. And uh, my wife walks every morning for about an hour. And I thought, yeah. you know what? I'm, I'm going to do that. So at the end of work, I would walk part of the distance home about half an hour, maybe 40 minutes. And just like you, I started to discover my neighborhood and I would take different routes and everything was great. And then when everything shut down, then it was like, well, I'm still going to do my walk, but now I have A, more time and B, I, I can explore my neighborhood. And so that's how it felt for about a month or two. And then I started thinking about projects and things I could do. And then because I was writing I or researching, I would go out in the morning and I would have a problem or I would have something that I was thinking about and I would come home and I'd be able to spend a couple of hours just essentially writing down what I thought when I was walking. And that fascinates me, that whole we think and walk and what what walking, how walking and talking or walking and communicating are really linked together for certain people. And it's it's just changed the way uh, my life is now because I walk yeah. a lot more and it frees up the way I think. You, you and I have actually had a very similar experience, mate, because I, I one of the things that I, I introduced to my day as soon as I was grounded at home was going for a daily walk and exploring the neighbourhood. And for a very long time, for a very long time through that at the height of the pandemic, I was doing a solid two hours walk every day, you know, without fail. I might cut into two parcels in one hour but that's what I was doing and and I'm not doing at quite that pace now but I never walk for any less than a, an hour a day like a, a specifically go for a walk and I'm probably like yourself I have a brain that's almost never quiet and turns over all the time <laughs> and so so the great thing about going for that walk is it just allows me to indulge the various like topics and thoughts that I'm I'm whipping around in my mind but why is that different? Why is are those thoughts whipping around your brain different from when you sit at your office chair or when you're walking? They seem to be very, very different from, from my point of view. Uh, yeah, me too, mate. And I, th I, I think it's associative, right? I mean, it, even if you're at home, but you've during, during the pandemic created a home workspace or you always worked at home, you know, one, it, it, it's when you're, because here I am, you know, kind of in, in, in my home, in the usual place where I, I, I interview and podcast from, but also where I write from, also where I edit from, also where I actually do my job, work a bunch of Excel spreadsheets, all that stuff. It's all done there. So anywhere within the vicinity of this, it feels like the workspace and it feels like my brain's being channeled in a particular direction. 
yeah, via years of nurture rather than nature. Whereas, you know, going out for a walk with a constantly piece of evolving scenery, whatever it may be, uh, and, you know, the thing I never do is duplicate the same walk on the bounce. You know, I don't just richly do the same loops or anything. I'm always trying to, like, shake it up. But it just spurs different things in my mind. And I think it's also the feeling of escape, you know, walking away from your desk and walking out of your home on onto the road, onto the street, There's something, whatever the weather is like outside, whether it's terrible, whether it's beautiful, it's a very freeing thing, isn't it? Yeah. When I was working at TVO in the, in the nineties, or when I was working at space in the two thousands, I would walk every day. I build, I mean, I would eat lunch at my desk because I didn't have, I feel, I never felt I had a lot of time. So I would, I would eat at my desk, but then when I needed a break, and, you know, almost everybody, I mean, the great excuse about working is people would go and they would have a cigarette. Well, I don't smoke. Yeah. So, oh, okay, I'll take a 15 minute break and I'll go and do a walk. And it's such a great cultural neighborhood. I mean, look it up on Google Maps sometime. I don't think you've been to, have you been to Toronto? I have been to Toronto. I've been a couple of times actually, but you and I have never met in Toronto. We've no. always met in New York. Yeah. That's the next right. time, the next time I go to Toronto, we'll definitely meet up, well, mate. And what's weird is we've never met in San Diego or any of the other conventions. It always seemed that we would meet That's in correct. New York. So yeah. I didn't see you in Chicago. I, yeah. I, I don't know how that happens. Um, Isn't it but, funny? Uh, I know that is true. And I definitely have similar patterns with other people that I meet at one show and another and never see it the other. I mean, I've got a bunch of people who see it both. But that's that's yeah. so true. Given how many years I've been going to San Diego for, it's funny that we never met each other there. I started going in 86. Yeah. Oh, brilliant, mate. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Well, it was, I, you know, this is the story of my life. So I arrived in San Diego in 1986 and everybody tells me, oh, well, you know, the, the great San Diego's are over. I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah. Well, last year was Alan Moore. It was fantastic. You know, all this great stuff is going on, but now it's too big. And it gotten up to 9,000 people, I think. And people were complaining about it. And I was thinking, this is Mecca. Like, I couldn't believe yeah. it. And because, well, I think the first time I went, there were about 7,000 people and a thousand of them were professionals. I guess I could count myself as a professional because I was managing the silver snail. But the ability to go to dinner and meet Nick Lando and Mike Lake and all the creators, you know, I was a huge fan of the British scene. And to be able to walk into a bar and see Barry Smith there or yeah. know, Dave Gibbons or, you know, whoever i mean i couldn't have at that time i couldn't afford to go to for time or for money but go to san diego because it was the mecca everybody would be there and and it was extraordinary and then i for me in about 2002 that's when i was going for space and i had a really focused agenda and that meant that i never really saw anybody i you know i yeah. would have interviews just lined up I, I think at the height of Prisoners of Gravity, I was doing 45 or 50 interviews in one San Diego. And so that meant I, essentially I would be in a hotel room and people would be coming in and we'd be changing yeah. the backgrounds. And it was a very funky thing because I never felt that I was at the con. I was con adjacent. Yes, <laughs> you know? yeah, I get it. Uh, and yet everybody would come up. And then because we worked until seven, generally I would have dinner with my crew and I wouldn't really... And I had to get to bed early because often I would have to research or I would do whatever. So I might have two hours a day where I could socialize or go out and have lunch. Or I mean, lunch again was a 15 minute situation. 
But uh, I know how busy you are at the cons. And it's all, it's interesting to me because it's almost all work. You know, if you're at dinner, you're often at dinner with clients or your dinner with your crew or however it works. And you never really turn off. And so convention seasons became a really, you know, big part of our lives, obviously. No, it, it's so true. I'm going to take this moment to say, welcome to Hard Agree. My name's Andrew <laughs> Sumner, and I'm here with my guest, Mark Asquith, producer, writer, fellow interviewer, Mark Asquith. <laughs> and I think that's the longest we've ever gone into this episode before I've actually introduced who the guest is, <laughs> which is okay. the way that my conversations with Mark always go, by the way. And to return, Mark, before we start talking okay. about you and your career path, as to your point, and we're talking about, of course, the convention experience, particularly at San Diego, New York. But I, for me, even though I do both, I've been doing both of those shows for a very long, put a vast amount of work into both of them with my team, who, who you You've also met a number of times. Really, the apex was in San Diego because that's the kind of the progenitor of it all. And, and, you know, that's the original non-profit for the good of the medium. It's not, say, the thing about New York Comic Con, which is a great event, which I love, but that thing exists to to make money for Reed, right? Whereas whereas San Diego Comic Con exists to benefit and promote the art form itself, which I think is a, a beautiful thing. But the thing about, the thing about that show particularly is when I just think of the huge amount of work that the the Titan crew put into that very large booth that we have at at San Diego. And so, you know, essentially a regular San Diego day for us is you're getting up at six, seven o'clock in the morning, you're grabbing some breakfast, you're doing all the stuff on the booth, you run the booth all day, and then you get people like myself who have to take go away and take some off-site business meetings. And then I, I, I MC our Titan Comics and Titan Books panel at San Diego. So I go and, I go and host those and then, you know, do various other things. Like I'll, I'll do the diamond presentation to the comic book retailers about what our plans are, all that kind of stuff. And then when we hit the evening, then it's like you're, you're entertaining your, your, you know, your key business associates, whether that's creators or whether it's the American, the very cool American retailers or global retailers that we work with. So, so the whole thing is, I think we're, we're, we're just on fumes by the end of it. And I, I, I think it's probably three to four hours sleep a night is the maximum you get. Well, a lot of the cats who work for me are 25 years younger than I am. Yeah. And, and, but everybody's wiped out at the end of it, you know, and what I frequently have to do when I get back home after San Diego, particularly, and also New York Comic Con, is essentially I have a week where I just completely wipe out and can't do anything. You know, I'm, I, I, it's not unusual for me to spend almost two, three days of sleep. Like it's like going away on a trawler and coming back after working 48 hour days. You just totally spent at the end of it, but spent in a glorious way, I think, Mark. Yeah, it's funny. I I asked Frank Miller about this once, and he he said it takes him three days to recover from each day he spends at a con, which is yeah. tough. I mean, that's tough. <laughs> my problem with conventions, not my problem, but I would have to shoot the convention. So often it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And on Sunday, I would leave and I would take the red eye because I would have to get into the office really early and then make a story for Monday about San Diego. So I would have to, I mean, I didn't have a chance to have that unwind period because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 
I would be creating stories. And then generally, I mean, I might do a story on Friday, but generally I would say, you know, I'm out or I'm doing something completely different. And then Friday and then get Saturday and Sunday off and somewhere hope that I would get a day off. But it it's hard to explain because you, the, the nature of television and my kind of television was that you had to get it on air as quickly and as expediently as possible and showcase all of what a convention is about. So like New York Comic Con to me is so different from San Diego. So as a storyteller, how do I set those up? And so yeah. locators work, crowd shots work, cosplay work, but also then it becomes the guests and what are the things that you talk about. And often you and I would talk because when I was interviewing you, it was for Space, which was Canada's National Science Fiction Channel. It's now been rebranded as CTV Sci-Fi. But back in the day, my we would have certain shows like Doctor Who. So I would seek out the British guests, even if they didn't have anything to do with Doctor Who, but they could talk about it and they would have a Doctor Who story. And then, of course, you guys were a goldmine because Titan handled all these wonderful Doctor Who products. So I think for the for there were three years in a row where you, you were definitely a part of my Doctor Who coverage. Because, yeah, maybe Tuesday would be Doctor Who and then Wednesday yeah. would be Battlestar Galactica. You know, I would pace out the stories so that if you were into toys, there'd be a day that you could watch on tele. You know, space would cover the toy bit. And then there'd be a day where you could catch up on, you know, television. Because I spent a lot of time in, you know, interviewing movie stars and television stars. And uh, but to me, it's all part like what I wanted to show was this is a community, because, as you know, an Andrew Sumner is there next to maybe, a you know, an actor like, you know, I don't know, Peter Capaldi. Yeah. So what you want to do is have this great collision of that person is famous, that person isn't. But they're both talking about Doctor Who, which I think fans relate to. I, I think that's so true, mate. Now, now, before we get back into onto our pop culture and uh, comics focus, pop culture focus, I'd just like to take you, uh, if you could talk me through, you've got to have had a particularly interesting career and some interesting steps in, in your career. So do you just want to take me through the basic planks of it, Mark? Well, it's weird that you call them steps they didn't feel like steps no they happened organically without you noticing i'm sure they happened organically and they were real quantum leaps so i got a very good education from the university of toronto and i came out and i started working for a small press called coaches and that we published margaret atwood and michael andace and an author called bp nickel and bp nickel became my mentor and at some point in early 1982 bp nickel said do you want to be the 50th best designer in Canada, or do you want to be the best in the world at something? And I, of course, you know, like any young kid, I went, like, I want to be the best in the world. And he said, nobody understands comics like you do. Nobody. I've never met anybody who gets them. So you should do that. And at the time, I was at a crisis in my life, personally. I I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I loved Coach House. I loved the people. But it, I felt a bit like, I'm in paradise, but I'm in somebody else's paradise. Yeah. Like, this is wonderful, but it just didn't line up. So I, I, a friend was getting married in Greece, and I went to Greece, and then I toured around, and I ended up in London, and I went into the Forbidden Planet. And 
I had never seen a store like that. And I met Lick Landau and I met Mike Lake. And they were like, these are people like me. By the way, for for anybody, I've probably not mentioned this on the show, but if anybody ever watches me in my other guys presenting Forbidden Planet TV, they'll know that, A, I also, I I work for Forbidden Planet. I present its YouTube channel and and I do a bunch of other things there as well. I'm the EVP at Titan. And Nick Landau is my boss. You know, that's that's the fact. Brilliantly. we were all long-haired guys, and you know we were all into it. And uh, they energized me, and they changed me. I came back to Toronto, and uh, the Silver Snail were deciding that they were going to move into distribution. They became Andromeda Distribution, so they needed a manager of their store, the Silver Snail on Queen Street. So I was like, yeah, I'm in. And 1982, 1983, moving things along. And in 1983... We had a guest appearance program from Paul Smith, who was on the X Men at the time, and I did great an artist, interview with great him. artist, Paul Smith. great artist, great run. And he was I interviewed great him Doctor for, Strange as well. I thought, yeah, yeah, he went to you know he did a ton of other stuff, yeah, and is an animator. But what was interesting is that I interviewed him, and we were kind of doing a magazine, and we we're doing various things, and he was like, "You should get into like you should get into comp." He was so supportive. And I'm like, well, I'm doing this now, but, you know, maybe we'll see, you know, I wanted to write comics, but at the, you know, the moment, you know, this is my job, I'm running the store, but he must've said nice things to Marvel or nice things to people. And so people said, well, we want to come up to the store. So I had Bill Sienkiewicz, I had a number of other people coming up and then I went, this is a middle of 1983. And I said, oh my God, I have an opportunity to be an evangelist for comics. Because I have the store, I, I knew the people at Much Music, I knew the people at, you know, basically MTV in the States. I had all kinds of contacts like that, and people, because the people shop there, yeah. and uh, producers from the CBC, producers from radio. So then in about 84, I became a regular on a really famous radio show in Canada in the morning, and I started doing various things. And then in 1985, people discovered you know, comics in a big way. Yeah. And then 1986 was the year of Mao's Watchmen and Dark Knight. Yeah. And I was, you know, I had had Frank Miller, you know, was a friend and these people were known to me. And every, you know, because I was a retailer, I had a certain weird access. And so my Rolodex grew and all these artists, like I suddenly realized, well, you know, I know all these people, mostly North American, to be honest. And I, then I, you know, at some point I thought, well, I'm, I want us to become a publisher. We'll do, you know, Silver Snail Comics. And uh, we did one called Pork Night. And it made the artist <laughs> yeah. and writer, Wob Walton, a lot of money. And, you know, I thought, well, this is it. This is what I want to do. And the owner of the Silver Snail said, no, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. And I said, look, I'm working like 85 hours. I, I did the math and I figured out that the high school kids were getting paid more than I was. And this was an owner who knew that I, you know, bled the silver snail. I bled yeah. comics. So I would never leave. But I said, like, this is insane. Like, this doesn't work. The math doesn't work. And so I had to leave. And it was heartbreaking. It was the most, it was horrible. And uh, I thought, well, like, what's a comic book guy going to do? I mean, there's nothing out there. I mean, I don't know. I can't walk into New York. I can't get a job as a writer. I, I, I tried. I was friends with a lot of the editors and our writers and artists, and they were really, really helpful. And at some point I realized, wait a minute, 
I'm if I'm supposed to be the guy, then why don't I pitch an idea? So I talked to a, a producer called Ron Mann who wanted to make a comic book uh, movie, a documentary, which is phenomenal, by the way. I, I love okay. it and I, and I own it. Comic book confidential, uh, right? Comic book confidential, and and so he wanted to be a, basically a Valentine to Marvel, and I said, my God, you're you, like I knew him because I knew him from he made a documentary about Coach House. And I said, no, 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 you're into burrows and counterculture. And you've got to make a movie with Robert Crumb. Like, and you can get him because Robert Crumb will get And if you get him, then you can get Kirby, Eisner, Kurtzman. And then I went, oh, my God, like, those are the four guys. And you could do a documentary, essentially, about the roots of comics. And they're all alive. I couldn't believe it. And then he said, well, yeah, I know. But I want to talk about current stuff as well. And I'm like. Okay, here's Mouse, here's Dark Knight, here's American Splendor. And I just loaded them up with about 200 comics. And I thought, you know, this happens all the time, too. As you know, people come in, producers or people, and then they go, thank you very much, but, you know, I'm not going to do it. And his reaction was the opposite. He's like, holy, this is amazing. This fits my sensibility. This is exactly what I should do. And so I did that, and that that won the basically the Canadian equivalent of, of the Oscar, which was great. And then on the strength of that, a, t- a producer that had worked By with the me way, at the mate, CBC. I, I saw that when it was first released in London, and I saw <laughs> it at the, at the ICA. And what I think was 88, but might be 19, 1989, the first year pretty much of me actually having a legit job, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the media industry. And very, very early days, I'd just like, it, it was within a year of me finishing grad school. Yeah. And it, it, that's what you call doing a postgraduate qualification. And, 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 and yeah, I, I remember it very clearly. I very, very, wow. Clearly. Had a beautiful well, soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack is amazing. Paul Mervides and the poster and everything is amazing. Yeah. But the, the what changed my life was that they Ron Mann very generously invited me when there was a Canadian premiere that I couldn't make because the prisoner launched the same day, the same weekend. Yeah. And I got and, married. And by the on way, that uh, the prisoner I want to talk to you about in a little bit. Because okay. we've got a shared <laughs> history with that. And but imagine uh, that though. Pre, pre, comic book confidential pre, world premiere yeah. getting married and and on that thursday the prisoner comic hit stores amazing man. so it was amazing I, I mean i don't know how my biorhythm was but it was yeah. pretty amazing <laughs> and uh, but he invited me to new york for the opening in new york so i did a lot of press and then we had dinner and the dinner was robert crumb gilbert shelton who like fabulous free freak brothers yeah, my hero Linda Barry, my hero, and Will Eisner, my hero. Like Amazing. it was like I couldn't my believe hero it. Too. I'm like, and I'm I'm feeling like I'm just this ex-retailer. And you know, this is crazy. Like it was crazy. But then a, a, a producer came and said to me, Look, if I ever have the power, I'm I'm gonna bring you on and you're gonna be a producer. And then he called me up and he said, Oh, you know, that idea we've been talking about. Well, I'm now the creative head of arts at TVO and come and pitch me. So I pitched him and he said, you're going to do a seven minute show between two episodes of Doctor Who. So I owe my career to Doctor Who. And then they lost the rights to Doctor Who. So he said, well, sorry, dude, you know, that's it. You know, great idea. But and I had the insane idea. And I said, you know, dude, 
Let's make it a half hour show. <laughs> and that became Prisoners of Gravity, which ran for five yeah. years and won a ton of awards and was the greatest. I, I couldn't believe that I would ever top it because the show was built around everything I liked. So it was science fiction, fantasy, comic books, and, you know, movies and television, you know, like cool stuff that we're all into, nerdy, you know, genre stuff. And, you know, we did one of the very first television interviews with Neil Gaiman. I got to interview Alan Moore. I got to interview Jack Kirby. Hundreds and hundreds of writers and creators. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, like Matt Groening. And it depends who you are, like who's famous. Like somebody goes, oh, my God, you interviewed so-and-so. And you want to go, you have no idea. Like it was an <laughs> insane time. And after five years, they they decided, you know, okay, we've served that audience. And so I became the showrunner on Canada's flagship literary show, which was called Imprint, which was a great experience and fantastic. But really, you know, dealing with really famous, you know, hardcore literary authors. And that was great. I mean, I really enjoyed that. And I thought when I when after two years, I left it and I thought, I never want to read another book or comic again. I'm out. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to work in television. Yeah. Television is dead to me. And I decided I'm going to write comics and I'm going to get back into that world. So that was 1996, beginning of 87. Sorry, 97. Yeah. And I, I so that was fine. And then on, I started working for a company uh, called um, uh, Studio X and another company called um mackerel and they were digital companies and they they had these brilliant ideas and i knew nothing because i'm you know 500 years old so i didn't understand this whole digital analog thing that was going on at that time and then both of them closed on the same day on august the 15th and i was like oh my god how do you lose two jobs on the same day <laughs> and that day space got its license and space, of course, as I, I've mentioned, is Canada's national science fiction channel. And I I contacted them because I thought, well, you know, I have to. And they contacted me. Like, it was one of those weird things. And so the person in charge of it was a woman called Marcy Martin. And she said, you know, people are coming in here and they're pitching themselves. And they all, their big selling point is they know you. <laughs> so we have to meet you. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. So-and-so and so-and-so, and so, like all these people that come into her office and their big thing was, you know, I actually am a friend of, you know, Mark Asquith. I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, all right. I'm glad to hear that. And so she said, I don't have the money and I don't have the position, but you have to work for us. And then she worked things out. I became one of the founding producers of Space. I promised her five years and I thought, that's it. You know, I'll launch it. And But I hate television. Like, I want to be in radio or I want to be in comics or, you know, but I don't want to be in TV. I just have a frustration with the pace of that life. I mean, it's fine yeah. if you're 25, but, it, you know, you're a 40-year-old guy and you're making television. It's hard. Yeah. And then I fell in love with the group of people I was working with and then the, as you know, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, everything started to exponentially change. And 2002, when Halle Berry and, and Hugh Jackman showed up at Comic-Con, you could feel the needle was the about needle to move. completely yeah. go. And I, and I knew it because I could feel it and I'd been there. And so I thought, well, I can't leave now, even though 2002 is sort of my, my exit date. And I just thought, this is... Like, this is exactly the most exciting place to be in the world. 
is covering pop culture right now. And then it didn't stop for 20 years. I mean, it's been an amazing <laughs> yeah, right. run, you know, like. It has been know, unbelievable, hasn't it, mate? That this last 20 years, if you're in the pop culture business and you've spent your entire life being focused on it, to see it become, to take over the mainstream the way it has is really quite an amazing ride to have been on. It is. And to, to see friends work on, you know, Mike McDola or Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore on Jeopardy. Yeah. Like, you know, and a couple of comic book people died recently and they got write-ups in the New York Times. Yeah. Jack Kirby died. I tried to get him a write-up in the New York Times. I had an interview with him that I sent to all the American broadcasters. Nobody aired it. I said, like, this is, I am offering this up. I work for basically the PBS of Canada. Please, like, pick whatever you want from this. We're not going to charge you, but you have to talk about the impact that Jack Kirby had. And we couldn't get it done. Art Spiegelman got it done. So yeah. all praise to Art. But that's how different things were. You know, like that's a sea change. Now, you know, I mean, it's it's become part of the mainstream, which is so, I mean, it's wonderful for me. But I kind of feel like, well, what's the next frontier? Like, what's yeah. the next thing? And I remember being ridiculed in the early 80s for saying, and I was quoted in the Globe and Mail as saying, comics are a medium and not a genre. And everybody rolled their eyes and everybody went, what a pretentious <laughs> piece of shit. Like, come on. And I'm like, but it's true. Like, yeah. comics are a medium. And it's weird to me that mainstream in the comic book world meant X-Men and Wolverine and superheroes. And mainstream in the real world marginalizes this yes. stuff. So yeah, it, to live in that world and to live in the in the you know television world because I had these two worlds, I always felt it like I really felt like an embedded journalist, yeah. you know, because I had access. The other thing is that I was really interested in science. So because space was allowed to do anything that I wanted to do, I covered a lot of science. So I got to interview Buzz Aldrin and tons of scientists and you know Dr. Stephen Hawking, tons of physicists, you know, just. A miracle job. I mean, I mean that must know. have been wonderful for you, mate, as, as a science aficionado. That must have been incredible. Well, science, science fiction, comics. So when you got burned out of comics, you go, okay, now I'll just do some literature. And you do some literature, and then you go, I'm really tired of that. Like, let's go do science. And then you do that. And, you know, interviewing people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Brian Green, that whole side. And, you know, people in comics always want to talk to me about the comic book people. Literature, you know, people interested in literature want me to talk about authors. But the science people are like, holy shit, like you've interviewed 100 astronauts. I'm like, yep. <laughs> As a 12-year-old boy growing up in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, you couldn't even conceive of that. You know, I got to interview Russian astronauts, which blew my mind. Like, this is amazing. I'm finally getting to it. I mean, I love the Russian program more than I love the yeah. American program. But anyway, sorry, we, we digress. Uh, but, then but, that, but not that's really, because it's, it's, it's so on point, mate. It's so on point. And what you're saying, the whole concept of having spent that kind of pop culture career and the 10-year-old in you going, that is amazing, particularly given where you started from. It's like me starting in the northwest of England in, in Merseyside, you know, wow. essentially being 
you know, quite harshly challenged on the local trains on match day when Liverpool or Everton were playing, but I'd be sitting there reading my Batman comics, you know, and that led to quite a few altercations. That Starting from that point, you know, 10 years old in Merseyside and then having a career, you know, in American pop culture, I had no idea of how I could plot that course. I still don't even really know how I did it now. You know, to me, no, it's... I- I, I completely agree with you. And that's the the other thing that you mentioned, just, you know, you're from Merseyside. I'm from Ottawa, Ontario. Frank Miller is from Vermont. Like you look at the <laughs> yeah. trajectories of these people and you go, wait a minute. I mean, Guillermo del Toro, for, you know, Mexico, like how are these people? And when you meet them, you all have this commonality because you weren't from, you know, the places like Hollywood or New York where this stuff was going to happen. You know, I, you know, because he moved to Toronto, I got to meet the great director of the zombie film, you know, and he, it was wild. He'd moved here, but you, again, he was from Pittsburgh. He never felt like, you know, he was yeah. part of the mainstream. And of course, Canada has David Cronenberg. And yeah, again, you know, he never felt part of the mainstream almost, you know, Margaret Atwood, like, what do you do with her? Is she a major author or is she, but she's a nerd. Yeah, she loves comics. She did comics when she was at university. I, I think know? I think that amalgamation of, of outsiders is 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 really a, a key constituent to the whole pop culture business, the whole pop culture ethos, the the whole pop culture in pop culture industry. And you encounter it time and time again. How did you end up doing this? Is a really interesting question. I think and it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it because very few people start out as establishment figures because there wasn't an establishment for a start the 20 years ago 30 years ago there's no pop culture establishment i mean people forget because of the speed with which it's it's exploded that if you if you take a time machine back to 2007 an average person on the street has no idea who Tony Stark is, has no idea who Steve Rogers is, right? Uh, And if you ask them to name the real identity of a superhero, pretty much people can only say Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent, and some people can say Peter Parker, but that's it. That's it. Nobody knows jack jack shit outside of comic book aficionados. Uh, And these characters that are now preeminent in global entertainment, the whole world knows. Here's another one, right, mate? 2007, ask anybody on the street, what what is it that Captain America's special powers are? What can he do? People don't, nobody knew, you know, and, and now the fact that he's a super soldier, all that, everybody knows it, right? The, the, the change in and how much that information has embedded itself into our culture, how famous Tony Stark is as a character, you know, that, that's only taken 13 years to go from no one knows to everyone knows. And and now Marvel movies outperform everything, including the, including the Star Wars universe. It's really been quite an amazing thing to watch. It's extraordinary. And as far as Marvel goes, you have to look at the team of the brilliant brain trust, you know, to me, Kevin Feige and that team. But also, it's amazing sure. to look back. I thought Iron Man 1 was a pretty good film. I mean, I thought yeah. it was fine. You know, it did what it had to do. It, it was good. And that was great. You know, as a comic book fan, you're like, yay. And then these films started to follow. And I, I, I mean, I'm really lucky. I got to go to media screenings of this stuff. I got to interview people and whatever. But I remember going, like, avoiding the media screening for the last two Avengers movies. And I wanted to see them with real people. And because I, I didn't want, like, I, I just, 
didn't want to do that. And I could, I knew I, I often had to make pieces, but I would use the EPK or I would use the interviews we did. But then I thought, no, I want that experience of being an idiot sitting in the cinema with my popcorn. And I remember, I will never forget the moment that, that, sorry, spoiler coming, Steve Rogers, Captain America, catches Thor's hammer. Wow, yeah, of course. And the audience went bananas. It was yeah. like a touchdown had been scored or a soccer goal or, you know, for me, hockey. Like I had never seen a group of people erupt with such passion and such cheer. It was crazy. And I, I thought, wow, they've actually paced this movie wrong because now people are going so crazy for the next 10 or 15 seconds that we can't hear any of the dialogue. You couldn't hear any of the dialogue. And, I, and you know, that was a real breakthrough for me. The other yeah. one was I got to see the first, I was on set of the first Tim Burton Batman movie. Which is actually Which is actually where I met Neil Gaiman, which is yeah. another story. But I got invited to two preview screenings for that film. And the first one, and you'll get this because you're in the industry and you're involved with toy people, but it was the licensees screening. Yeah. And it was hilarious because you would go and I'd be going, oh, this is great. This is great. And there'd be silence. And then someone's product would show up like the Batmobile and a little section of the audience would cheer. And then the moment <laughs> where, the, where the bat plane came up in front of the moon. And the whole bat plane, uh, yeah, whoever uh, had the license, yeah. they went bananas. They just went crazy. <laughs> and afterwards, I went out to drink with a bunch of the guys who were there, and they were all going, wow, my product got, you know, great placement, and I'm going to sell a ton of this stuff. And I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not in retail anymore. But at the same time, oh, my God, Marvel and, D you know, sorry, DC Comics and their licensors, this is going to be a sea change. And I remember I visited I visited Paul Levitz a few weeks or months before that movie opened. And I think DC were worried. I think they'd seen the cut. They were a little bit worried. And I was like, this is going to be a smash. He said, how do you know? I said, because all the bike, black bike couriers in Toronto are wearing the black T-shirts. And yeah. black T-shirts are sold out in Toronto. He's yeah. like, what? I'm like, everybody is wearing the Batman shirt. Yeah. And he goes, well, why? And I said, I got to be honest. I don't think it's Batman. I think it's the Joker. And I think it's the soundtrack. Whoever decided the, that yeah. Prince should the do Prince that. Soundtrack. Music, yeah. th that was a game changer for that movie and for popular culture. So yeah. all of a sudden, Batman, which was known as, you know, a certain thing, was on a TV show and Adam West played him and whatever, became a completely different thing. It became this gothic urban nightmare. And that movie is like really underrated as far as all of that goes, yeah, as far I, as I'm concerned. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think I was completely obsessed with that movie when it came out as, you know, a lifelong Batman fan and saw it a ridiculous number of times. It's probably the last film that I saw multiple times in the cinema, which is something I just don't do anymore, completely grown out of that. But it had a huge impact upon me. While also I knew in real time that's an imperfect film. You know, it's very poorly plotted. It's very poorly scripted. It's full of holes. Burton is a brilliant visual stylist. I'm not 
convinced he's any good with narrative at all. But for all its holes, there's also so many brilliant things about it, not the least of which is, if you've read Batman comics since you were three, and I don't get me wrong, I've talked about Adam West many times on the show, and I love Adam West, and I love 60s yeah. Batman. That's where my love of Batman comes from. But I was desperate for Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, Batman on screen, and then to suddenly get it in the way that it landed. And for, you know... Jack Nicholson was great and took all the, all the oxygen of publicity at the time. But in fact, Keaton's amazing in the film. And, you know, he's got all the love he has now because he, he was just so good. It's it, That was the thing that could have really sunk the film, getting Bruce Wayne and Batman wrong. But nonetheless, it's an imperfect artefact, I think, we're, we're, because when you watch it now, you know, all its flaws are, are laid bare. And once the once the kind of excitement, the chain reaction excitement has gone. But what is absolutely true is his cultural impact was amazing. Absolutely well, amazing. And they, they got one thing right. You cast Bruce Wayne. You cast yeah. Tony Stark. You don't cast Iron Man. Yeah. The only one where it gets a little fudgy is Superman and Captain America. Because the way those masks work, or lack of mask in yeah. the case of Superman... I mean, you know, then that becomes important. But otherwise, like Iron Man, like really, you got to nail Tony Stark. Batman, yeah, well, you well, got to nail Bruce Wayne. And you, but you're right, and that I because at that point I was now in media, it and I had made the move from um, being a retailer and working in in wholesale. It was it was. Like you could see that it was having a change. We're also one of those things where I would be able to say to people at DC, you have no idea what's happening in stores. They cannot keep Dark Knight in print. Like 25, 30 copies of Dark Knight were shooting out of the store every day. Like retailers were, you know, they kind of knew the rhythm of their product. But the same thing happened with Watchmen. When that trailer opened for the first, you know, Nolan Batman movie, and they did the Watchmen trailer. I was at the media screening with my daughter, and she turned to me and said, Dad, do we have that? I'm like, oh, yes, <laughs> we have that. And, and she said, I want you to read it to me. But they then sold more copies of Watchmen were sold in the six weeks after the dropping of that trailer that had been sold since 1986. Yeah. So that's I, the power of popular culture. And I was on set of the of the Watchmen, which was really fun, and got to interview the team and Zack Snyder and Fantastic. the actors uh, because it was shot in Vancouver, and I'm yeah. you know Canadian journalist. Oh my God! I, I okay. So I have to. So people like you who we feel are embedded in this industry, we never know what our impact is going to be. I'm on set, and I'm talking to the set designer. And Alex is a great guy. And we were talking and we, we, I said, the first interview I want to do is setting everything up. And I want it to be by the kiosk, you know, where the kid is reading the comics, which if you know the if graphic you know, novel, if you know, you know which one is a key place. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we did most, the bulk of the interview there. And then I said, I want to move it. I want to do two other, two or three other locations. And he said, well, how about let's go to the restaurant where, you know, Dryberg takes Lori. I said, no, nothing really happens in there except for maybe the four-legged turkey. What? The four-legged turkey. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, there's a four-legged turkey, which kind of sets up the whole idea of cloning and the fact that Dr. Manhattan has allowed that, and that sets up the squid. Just a minute. Just a minute. Where is that? I said, it's in, it's in the first issue. It's about issue. It's about page 21, 22. It's near the end or whatever. I've forgotten the number. He goes, just a minute. Hello? It's Alex. 
Can you do you have a copy of the Watchman there? Okay, the scene at where I've forgotten the name of the restaurant. It goes, is there a four-legged turkey? And the guy at the end of the phone or the woman at the end of the phone says, yes. And of course, <laughs> it's in the movie, but they didn't have time to make it uh, a prop because they were shooting that scene the next day. So you can hear it in the audio, which was hilarious from my <laughs> point. And I said, no, no, I want to do the interviews at Gunga Diner. And then I wanted to do, so we did a bunch of stuff outside the, the movie theater and then outside of Gunga Diner. And then a real pleasure for me, I, I did one outside one of the, the poster walls, because I think what Dave Gibbons did in terms of the posters and Pale Horse and all that stuff, it was amazing. Anyway, that's one of the seminal graphic novels for me. But being on set of that was blowing my mind. I couldn't believe it. And I wore my silver snail jacket because I thought there's yeah. going to be one guy on the crew who is going to know that. And I was wrong. Like 20 of the guys <laughs> on the crew. And they all came out, you're Mr. Snail. Hi, Mr. Snail. And so they all knew about the store because a lot of the guys who, who were interested in comics had worked in Toronto and then moved to work on the X-Files or moved to work on Lois and Clark or some of the other stuff that was shooting in Vancouver. And, you know, it was about, that was, that was probably the greatest weekend of my life, just going to the Watchmen set because I'd lived with it for so long. I knew Alan and Dave. I knew what this meant to Dave. It was just an amazing thing. And I wish that I was able to go on set of the Sandman, but with COVID and everything locked down, yeah. uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to Neil's Sandman. That's going to be oh, really yeah. cool. It's going to be epic. And, and it, have, you, have you checked out uh, Dirk's audible version of it? My God, that Spot man's on, a genius. Right? Dirk Mag's an amazing guy. Yeah, he's he's an amazing player. I've, ne sure. I've never met him, but I boy, that guy, I respect him greatly. That's an amazing piece of work. Well, I, I, I'm I'm lucky enough to call Dirk Mag's my friend. We once collaborated when I was at IPC. When I was publishing the various men's and music mags, I used to publish. You know, before I was at Titan. One of the things I did was I looked after the all the old British comic books that IPC Time Warner still owned. You know, the Valiant and Lion, the Steel Claw, all those kind of characters. But the other thing we owned, which another acquaintance of mine, Michael Moore, got used to work on, was uh, Sexton Blake. And and so Dirk ad adapted a comedy version of Sexton Blake for the BBC. And, and so I got to know him back then. This is almost 20 years ago now, I think. But, yeah, he, he is... The quality of his work, nobody can beat Dirk in audio. He's in a super league of his own. He's in a premiership of one, and it's him. And and the work that he's done on Sandman for Audible, just unbelievable. It's amazing. So you mentioned you mentioned Moorcock, and this is where our lives kind of eddy and circle. So I went to UCAC, over Prisoners of Gravity, mostly because I wanted to interview Neil Gaiman, Dave McKean, the British artist, and this some guy called Alan Moore. Yeah. And so I went over to do that interview and Alan's interview was on the Wednesday, which was going to be the last day. And then I was going to fly out on the Thursday. But we discovered at a flyer at the Forbidden Planet that there was going to be a launch of, of, of this magazine, New World, relaunching yeah. with Brian Aldiss and Michael Moorcock. So we changed our flights and the, the brilliant Greg Thurlbeck, who is the director, and, and we did a lot of the interviews in that season and me, we stayed and I interviewed Brian Aldiss and Michael Moorcock and the Michael Moorcock interview, like for somebody who at the age of 12 was reading, you know, Elric of, I mean, Elric changed my life. I mean, yeah. it's funny. And then Neil wrote that, Neil Gaiman wrote that story 
the comic about how, you know, being influenced by Moorcock. And I had to laugh because I thought that's every, every kid in that period. Michael Moorcock was, you know, he's he's undoubtedly the man and the guy's a genius. He's a self-facing genius. He has the best stories. So I don't know if you know this mate or if you checked it out, but one of the things that that's part of hard degree is I do an irregular series with Mike Moorcock. It's called Michael Moorcock's multiverse, which is him uh, is him delivering stories from his life. And it's because we chatted for a whole bunch of, we talked, doing with a whole bunch of Titan projects because one of the things we've done at Titan Comics is we've collected all of his graphic novel work in one consistent library edition which is beautiful by the way you know so it's it's his and P. Craig Russell's Elric it's a bunch of other great stuff we're very proud of it and uh, Nick Lando's big big Michael Moorcock fan has known him for years as well but in the course of us you know talking about these various projects we we, we realised we got on pretty well so he you know, he's quite one of the things that we wanted to do is just lay down some of these amazing anecdotes he's got from this incredibly varied career he's got because he's not just an author. You know, he's a screenwriter. He's scripted the land that time forgot. He's a musician. He worked with Hawkins, the Blue Oyster Cult. You know, just unbelievable. And he has the most amazing stories. You know, and he's he's completely candid. So I I know I know you're a fellow fellow Moorcock lover, but you should check that strand out, mate. I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. Well, he has two of my favorite anecdotes, well, three, actually, of my favorite things that happen on Prisoners of Graffiti. One, I asked him, tell me about the multiverse. And he looked at me and he goes, it's my brain. <laughs> it's how I think. I thought, okay, that's great answer. Yeah. And then we, I was doing an episode on dreams because I'd gotten these fantastic, you know, fantastic interviews about dreams and dreaming and how dreams were affecting people. So I've, I've got Michael Moorcock, so I've got to ask him. So I said, you know, what do you dream of? How, how have your dreams influenced you? And he looked at me, goes, oh, I have the most boring dreams. I go to Tesco and I buy cheese. <laughs> that's the greatest. That's great. Because, of course, if you know his work, he, it's, yeah. he's living in the dreaming. This guy lives. And then the other thing that was cool is, so we're, we're doing it at the launch of, of New Worlds and we're in the back room of Titan. I mean, I think like literally the back room. Yeah. And somebody must have waved through a door and Michael Moorcock in the middle of the interview said, excuse me. And he got up and walked out and he's wired up and everything. And he walks out. And so we turned off the audio because so give him some privacy. And I'm thinking they're going like, what am I going to do? Like he just walked out. Is he going to come back? And he spoke a minute later. To his credit, he came and sat down and we ran the whole time because, you know, you want that moment. And I got back to Toronto and we were working on a show and I went, you know, the show would be perfectly structured if I had Michael Moorcock at the beginning of it and then Michael Moorcock at the end because he sets the idea up and then he finishes it brilliantly. And then I went, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I have it. So I've got my host, Rick Green, asking him a question and Michael says, excuse me, I have to go. And he gets up and leaves. (laughs) And as a producer, then I put in all the other interviews. And then all of a sudden, then we cut to Michael Moorcock coming back and sitting back in the chair. And Rick begins, you know, the interview that will end the uh, show. And I just remember thinking, he has no way, like, he's so brilliant that he gave me a gift that at the time, neither of us knew was a gift. I just think, like Michael Moorcock is the man. He's just, he's tied into a whole other frequency that we can only occasionally hear. And he's tuned in 24 seven. 
I, I, that's a hard agree from me, mate. And you and I are both 100% on the same page. Yeah, I, cu- I could not agree more. Uh, and, you know, it, it's very rare that somebody you admire, their genius, turns out to be so genial and pleasant and such a great person to hang out with. And that is exactly what he is. Uh, and, uh, you, know, he's, you know, he's just written a, a new, new Elric, which he's publishing next year. Can't wait for it, mate. But let's let's close out on talking about. Can you believe we burned off an hour? I I knew this. I knew this would happen. I absolutely knew this would happen. Let let's let's close out on on a great uh, sort of mutual love of ours. The 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 ITC pantheon. So this is this is this is an audio podcast. So what you can't see during our conversation is. I'm in. I'm sitting in front of John Steed's uh, bowler hat and umbrella. Mark, Mark is sitting in front of the penny farthing from the prisoner. <laughs> so you don't get much more ITC than that. Although it technically, I guess, Avengers not really an ITC show. But mate, so something that we're very proud of publishing at Titan is a graphic novel called Shattered Visage, and and Shattered Visage is a graphic novel tied around the classic Prisoner TV series uh, created by and starring Patrick McGoon. And the co-writer of that excellent graphic novel, which you're proud to publish, is Mark Asquith. So, mate, how did that, what does The Prisoner mean to you and how did that project come to be? That's a complicated, really complicated question. I, wow, I don't even know how to answer that. And I've been asked it a number of times. But I was fascinated by spies growing up, and I was really interested in them. And I later found, after the death of my father, that he was in Canadian intelligence. But I didn't know that at the time. But one, he used to take me to James Bond movies, and then we started watching The Prisoner together. And I remember the first episode, and it was good, it was fine. But I remember the next episode, The Chimes of Big Ben, and I just thought it was the greatest thing on television I had ever seen. I just thought, this is it. What a great show. And I would watch them with my dad whenever I could. And then we watched the last two together. And I think I think it's weird. I think the, the, the British got the show, and then Canada got it very shortly after you. But then there was a lag. I don't think Americans got the show. But no, we I think did that's get right. it here. I think that's right, mate. But I don't but really that's know. that's so often the case of British TV in yeah. Canada, isn't it? It's very close yeah, to Absolutely. Them. Monty Python is the same thing. Yeah. But I remember at the end of that show, my dad said, what's going on? Like, what do you think happened? And we had this long discussion about what we thought happened and who was number one and was, you know, all that stuff. And But for me, it was very tied to my father and watching the show with my dad because we didn't really, you know, we watched the Montreal Canadian hockey games. But this was one of the few... TV shows that we watched together. So anyway, cut to um, the probably a 89, just before maybe 88. And I start, no, maybe seven. And I start writing a spy graphic novel with Rick Taylor called silencers. And uh, we, I wrote it and it was four issues and plotted everything out. And uh, I had written it. And then Rick green was uh, sorry. Rick Taylor was going to draw it. And in that period, Dean Motter, who was a regular at the Silver Snail and, you know, just a great guy. And Dean and I, you know, we talked a lot and we would jam on things like Mr. X, which was a Canadian comic book at the time with Dean yeah. and Paul Ravosh. Wonderful on book, Mr. X. 
Yes, wonderful book and great posters and all that kind of stuff. And we would go to a local restaurant called the Rivoli and we would hash stuff out. And I was just there as a sidekick or, you know, just a guy on the sidelines. And there was another great guy on the sidelines, Ken Stacy. A lot of people were supporting this project. And then it all kind of changed. And the Hernandez brothers did the first four issues. And it didn't kind of, it was, a, it became their thing for a time being. However, in that period, with Mr. X getting so much buzz, Dean was approached by DC and they said, we want you to create something for us. And he said to me, well, if you had any dream project, what would it be? And I said, well, you know, probably Green Lantern. I love Green Lantern. And he goes, ah, no, I'm not interested in that. And I said, well, you know, Batman, you know, we could, there's some cool Batman stories. I'd love to do a two-faced story. I'd love to do a story about how the bat, you know, the bat cave gets built. And he goes, no. And I went, well, I mean, obviously, I mean, if you're talking dream projects, like it'll never happen, but it would be to do the ad, you know, kind of a sequel to the Prisoner TV show. And Dean just lit up. He's like, oh, what a great idea. And then we started bouncing around ideas. And at that point, I just thought, well, I'm just a friend of Dean's. He's going to go. He's going to pitch six things to D.C. Something will happen. He'll probably end up working, you know, with, you know, Grant Morrison on something because he was known as an artist and, you know, whatever. And then he came back from New York and he goes, you're not going to believe it, but they went for the prisoner idea. So we had to write it up formally. We did the whole thing. And then Dean said, okay, we'll co-plot it. And then you could write the dialogue and I'll draw it. I'm like, well, uh, okay. And still not really believing it because this is my favorite television show of all time. And I still can't believe that it's going to happen. And I kept thinking, because I am a practical man, well, wait a minute, you got to get the rights to Patrick McGowan, because I want to do it with Patrick McGowan. You have to get the rights to Leo McKern. That's never going to happen. You probably have to work a rights deal with ITC or whoever owns the rights. We don't even know that. You have to probably work out with the other, you know, I, I, I mean, it's just a nightmare, but I'm you know, I have the DNA of a producer. So I was looking at this going, it will never happen because these are all the hurdles that have to happen. So, and we wrote up the proposal and, and then it took about a year. And then Chantal Denise, who's the brilliant at the time, was the brilliant lawyer for DC, came back and said, okay, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. But we have the licenses to use Patrick McGowan and Leo McKern, which was like angels were singing. And I just <laughs> yeah, thought, amazing. oh my God. Like that's, I mean, this is crazy. I thought at the time, as a, because as a, I bought it in its original format, it's four prestige issues. At the time, I thought it was amazing that DC had got the likenesses to those guys. It, it was crazy. And, and to me, it would only work if you got them. And then the other thing that was sort of radical was he's not going to be, be like Patrick McGowan is not going to be the center of the story. He's going to be more like Sandman. He's this weird character who is the most important character. But really, it's happening around him. This other relationship yeah. is happening. And Dean and I wanted to do a strong female character. We, you know, we really had this idea of what we wanted to do. But it would be somebody coming into that world. But I remember my favorite moment about the whole thing was Dean and I plotting it out. And, and at some point, I said, you know, because we both agreed we wanted to be in the village. We love Port Marion. I loved, I knew that Dean and I are design nerds. So I knew we were going to be doing all the design stuff. And I said, you know, we can build the bicycle on the back covers. We can do all this stuff. You know, we knew what the font was. It was so exciting. And then I suddenly realized, well, we have a major problem. 
We want to set it in the village, but there's no way the prisoner is going to be in the village. Like, it doesn't make any sense. He'd be in the real world. He'd be in London. It, it doesn't make any sense. So the core idea, the core visual ideas were done. Like, it's not going to work. And I said that to Dean. I said, look, I just from just from being an, a, the designated asshole on this team, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And this is why. And he was very patient. He said, yeah, but easy, you know, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and, I, and so because it's my dream project that has to happen. And I, I had one of the images that he and I really agreed on. And we were both. So I went to the Marvel offices and I got to see the Jack Kirby artwork, the original artwork for that, which blew my mind. Which, and then, which as, you, as you may also know, we published the archive edition of that. Yes, okay, very much so. Yeah. It, it, and, and, and you did the right thing and you put it together with the Steve Englehart, Gil Kane Absolutely. issue, which when I went to see, when I was shown the original and I, my mind was blown, they said, oh yeah, and here's this one. So in the same half hour, this is how, you know, again, gods were singing and I just thought, oh my God, or angels were singing. I thought, this is fated. Like, how does this happen that a guy from, you know, a guy who fell in love with the prisoner as a kid in Ottawa is now seeing the original pages from Steve Englehart and Gil Kane and Jack Kirby. And like, this is nuts. But Kirby, there was a, a Kirby had drawn a kind of statue and he'd done some Port Marion. And I said, we have to do the distressed village. And I want to see the, one of the big images in my head was a statue with the camera in the eye. And Dean, of course, got that immediately. He knew what that was. We're both Marshall McLuhan guys. We both, you yeah. know, studied him and I studied, I mean, McLuhan was one of my teachers. So we kind of had that whole background. But then what do you do? And I remember working on it for about a week and I was at the my wits end and I went for a walk. There you go. I went for a walk and he's talking to me. The number six is talking to me and number two. And I, I decided I'll do a monologue. I'll just have number two talk. So number two, I wrote for two days, just him telling me about being a number two. And then I said, okay, now we'll do number six. And I was there and I, I said, you know, why are you in the village? And number six replied, I was free to go. So I was free to stay. And I, I was rocked. I was completely, I'm like, oh my God, like this character is amazing that he, all of a sudden, he's such an ornery, crotchety, you know, counter guy that that makes perfect sense. I was free to go. So I stayed. So I thought, well, that's it. Now you've got your setting. Now you'll do it. And I called up while well, Dean and I would visit every week and we would go to the drunk, what we, the Duncan street grill, which we called the drunken street girl. And we would get <laughs> together and plot it out. And I came to him and my eyes must've been this big. And I said, Dean, I know how it can be in the village. And he's like, really? And I, I gave him the spiel and he just went, Oh my God, that's it. And then we knew, we knew we had it. And I, I guess I should have known we had it when I was holding the original pages by Gil Kane and Jack Kirby, because that was a sign like that is a sign. And, you know, it was, it was a real, you know, I thought, well, this will launch my career. This is, you know, I'm going to get into comics. This is going to be great. And because of that, we toured the prisoner in the UK in 1988. And that's where I met, you know, a lot of the British creators, but at the end of the day, I ended up getting a job in TV, which was at just when I could have moved, you know, in the writing comics direction. 
TV called and I was like, well, I love comics, but I don't know what I should do. And it was friends who basically said, we need an evangelist. You've already proved that you're an evangelist. Go be an evangelist. And after a year, I resigned because I thought, well, I've done my thing and I can go and I'll go to comics. And then a number of my friends and colleagues, particularly the comic book people were like, no, you have a unique platform. You have a giant bullhorn. You have a half hour television show on TV. You can't stop. And so that became five years of that. And then that became, you know, that became my career. So the whole thing is so weird, Andrew, I can't tell you, but all of it's been from love. I mean, I was an evangelist for the prisoner an evangelist for comics. And, you know, I just, I can't believe how lucky I've been. And really what I can't believe is how supportive the community is because when someone like Richard Bruning realizes this is your dream project, he helped makes it happen. You know, people at the CBC and at TVO and at space all recognized my passion. They all let me to do what I wanted to, to do. And it's a miracle because, you know, I, I used to teach students and the students and the interns would all say, well, how do you get from managing a comic book store to creating a television show? And I'm, that's the part of my career I don't understand. Like, that's the black box. Like, and you must have the same kind of thing. Like, how do you get from this guy to the guy? Like, what happens? And I don't know. It's like a vapor. It's, I literally don't know what happened, except that people reached down, hands grabbed me and pulled me up the ladder. And I spent the last 20 years of my career reaching down and pulling people up because that's what happened to me. And I knew that it would change my life. So I hope that it would change the lives of others. I, th I think that's very well said, mate. Uh, it, of course, for me, it's it's the it's the hardest degree of all, and here's why: because I, I think that the situation that you're in, that beautiful alchemy of how that came about for you, which is almost impossible to explain the the sequence of causal links that caused that to happen. I think one of the things that sits at the heart of it, something I often talk about. Is, is pop culture evangelism, because like yourself, it's been a primary interest of mine throughout my sentient waking life, you know, since, you know, and it's something I've been super conscious of since the fact, since I was three years old. I mean, I can remember, I can remember organizing a petition to bring the Adam West Batman show onto, onto Granada TV like when I was seven in primary school, you know what I mean? And that is one of many, I don't think I've ever told anybody I've ever done that before because the people I would have done it with will no doubt have long forgotten, but I, but, but I absolutely did it. And, and it's, it's like with yourself, mate, I I think the alchemy of how that has come about has come comes as a result of your your natural evangelism, your belief in the medium, you know, not a genre medium, and you believed in that since day one. But also the fact that you you're genuinely devoted to it, and you're a tremendous positivist, and it's an expression of positivism. I think that when things fall together in ways that you can't anticipate or predict, some of it is the ripple effect of how you treat people over a 30-year span. And things just come back like a boomerang that you can never expect and doors get opened. And a part of your story that really spoke to me was you talking about 
people going along to space in its early incarnation and go, hey, look, man, I, I know Mark Asquith, right? Well, why are they saying that? That's because they've all had a positive experience with Mark Asquith. And that's the work of decades, mate. You don't do that. And, and so the reason it's hard to, and I know a couple of people are in this boat, the reason it's hard in a classical sense, it's not like being a solicitor or a famous like trial lawyer where you've gone to law school, I want to practice law, I want to be the best, I want to be the best trial lawyer. And it, it's, a, it, it's a distinct career path. Your career has happened through, through alchemy and, and its glorious marriage with positive, positivity as well and i think it's come out of you you've self-actualized because you are a believer you're an evangelist but you're also a good bloke people like you and you know that's 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 the tale of our friendship over the last decade right the reason we know each other and instinctively know we have so much to talk about we probably speak once a year but it's an endless <laughs> conversation you know what i mean because you're a fellow traveler mate and I really recognise in you your belief and the fact that you have such a positive effect upon people. And I think that's I, I'm you're far from the end of your life, but it's a wonderful epitaph to have. Well, thank you. And I, you know, I feel the same thing with you. And I, it is funny. Early in my career, I began to see people who had kind of echo chamber careers, and and the people you think, oh, maybe they would have gone one way, but they were seduced by whatever it is they were seduced by. And to me, it was comics. And I, my daughter is in her mid-20s, and for her, it's musical theater. And I remember saying to her that I didn't like musicals. And, well, Dad, which ones have you seen? I said, well, I've seen Cats, and I've seen this and that. She goes, Dad, you haven't seen the right ones. And she's just as evangelistic about yeah. musicals as I am about comics. And we went and saw Fun Home, the brilliant, brilliant production, adaptation, musical of, of Alice and Bechdel's graphic novel. And I was a huge, you know, magnifying, you know, boomer, whatever you want to call it, guy on a on a soapbox for that graphic novel, which I thought was brilliant. And we're sitting this, watching this. And at the end of the day, I, I, I was having dinner with my wife and daughter. And I turned to my daughter and I said, I think it's a better musical than it is a graphic novel. And she practically <laughs> fell off her chair, but she had made an evangel, like her evangelism affected me. And it was for yeah. the first time in my life I realized, oh, this is the effect that I had other on other people. And I have a friend who said, oh, yeah, you telling me to read a book is like 10 other people telling me to write a book, you know, or read a book. And I'm like, oh, and I just feel like we're very lucky. And I still don't understand how it happens. Like, I, on it, I mean, this is I'm being honest. I And how does it happen for you? How does it happen for me? And you know, so many people that are mutual friends of ours, and you look at them and you go, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, our jobs, your job, Andrew, and my job did not exist when we were growing up. Correct. The idea Absolutely that we right. could do what we're doing literally had no place in popular culture. It had no place in the workplace. And, you know, for me in the early 80s to say, I'm going to devote myself to this it didn't make any, like it literally, if, unless you worked for Marvel in DC, there was no way to have, and in fact, those would have limited our careers. And the careers that you and I have had were kind of like that great comic book character, the in-betweener, or, you know, that yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. you know, we, we are between worlds. And I, yes. I, somebody that I feel is a fellow traveler who I barely know, I've only met a few times, is Paul Gravette, who I feel- Oh, yeah, is, he 100% is. You're, that's a very good shout, mate. 
he's one of us. Like I, the moment I met him, I'm like, oh my God, he's like the British version of me. And, you know, early on people in the eighties, Neil Gaiman had written a book called Don't Panic. And I read that and then yeah. and Landau and, and Mike Lake made me read this literally a Xerox of violent cases. And I knew right away, you know, Neil is another one. I mean, I didn't know what he would be, but I knew that he was part of the Paul Gr- you know, Don Melia, Mark Asquith, yeah. uh, and you, Andrew Sumner, and Igor Goldkind, you know, yeah, Mike Lake. Right. He's all of us all, kind yeah. of moving. And, and no, most of us, I mean, even for me, I'm not an on-air host. So most people don't know who I am. You, you have a higher profile. But for the most part, my career is invisible. I am the iceberg. Like, whatever you see whenever I get mentioned by somebody, it's this weird little glitchy thing. But then, you know, you suddenly realize, because I've had people, my one of my hosts, Teddy Wilson, said, oh, my God, have you seen your Wikipedia? I'm like, I don't know how, like, literally, I don't know. I'll read it. And I went, oh, my God, it's riddled with errors. And he goes, you must have written it. I said, I did not write this because you know me. I don't know how. But he goes, look at what you've done. Like, look at this, what you've done. And I... I have no sense of what I done because I knit my parachute on the way down. I just, yeah. I knew where I wanted to land. I wanted to land in the heart of popular culture. And I just aimed towards that. And if I could do it in radio, I would have appreciated that if I could do it as a writer, but the, the pathway was TV. And I, I found it toxic and difficult and horrible and many things. It's just not a life for a human being. And yet 30 years of my life is making television about popular culture. <laughs> because, but, and, you know, and growing to love the people and the industry yeah. and, the, and the kind of the, the whole in- encasement of, of that kind of culture, working with editors and cameramen. I learned more from, you know, my interns and from my cameramen and from my editors than I ever learned in school. You know, brilliant, brilliant people because they were all storytellers and they all gravitated towards storytelling. And the medium that was vibrant was television. And so that's where they all ended up. And I'm old enough where the vibrant medium was radio. So of course I would be drawn there, but then the curtain had already closed on that medium and the medium that was opening up was television. And, you know, I didn't really, because of my age, I didn't really understand the power of television quite the way other people did. You know, because that's a few years later. Yeah. But then, yeah, it's weird. It's just weird. And now it's weird because here we are and you can do hard degree and you can call up anybody you want. Pretty much everybody is going to say yes. And we all say yes because we're all part of, you know, we're all part of team hard degree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, <laughs> you know, no, I, We're, all, we're all part of that universe. And, you know, it's your proud. It's the it's the it's the opposite of the Groucho Marx syndrome. Right. I'm not a joiner, yeah. but I'm very much proud to be a part of of this ecosystem of comic well, book culture people. It, it's what a, it. It's something that's always drawn because I had like yourself, I, I had a very mainstream publishing career. You know, work. I worked on health service magazines to begin with. Then I, I wrote for and published mainstream mainstream magazines where even within the mainstream media of men's and music, my absolute devotion to comics was considered to be quite extreme and eccentric. And then I published a bunch of, of celebrity magazines, which, by the way, I, I absolutely wasn't interested in at all. 
And then I, I, I ran Caillou du Cinema in Francois, which is the antithesis of the kind of culture we're talking about, right? And yeah. I, I, But I always felt like an outsider within mainstream media. And the minute that my I had the chance to align my actual career with my personal media interests, it was just like walking through a portal into a whole other world. And it was like, yeah. oh, man, I really am. At home. It's like being given the keys to the Batcave. Yeah. Well, I, it took me five years to call myself a television producer because I thought, well, I'm not. I'm a comic book guy who does comic book things yeah. on a show that's about comics and science. Like, I'm a nerd. Like, I yeah. I am not a television producer. I don't smoke cigars. I don't, you know, I don't look that way. I'm not, hey, let's do this. <laughs> no, that's not me. Yeah. And, and you know, I the, the joy of the job was meeting Michael Moorcock and interacting yeah. with him. And then you know, my, you know, it's so many, like thousands of people. And at the end of the day, very few of them become friends. I mean, most of them just become people you've interviewed, but clearly they affected you and you affected them at some level. And, and I don't know how that happens. I think it's the great privilege of being a journalist. And it's funny because somebody asked me a while ago about, you know, where did your career come from and what was your interest in comics? And the first comic I fell in love with was at the age of four and it was Tantan by Hergé. And I realized Brilliant. that Absolutely everything fantastic. he is, he's a journalist who travels the world and it's comic books. And yeah. that's my life. My life is Tantan. I am Tantan. I wanted to be him at the age of four. I got to be him. Not quite exactly the same way. I didn't get to go inside a, you know, a submarine that looked like a shark. Yeah, I didn't go yeah. on, you, you know, Indiana to look Jones for Red Rackham's treasure. Yeah. I never got to look for the treasure. I never got to go to the moon. But I met people who went to the moon. I met I met yeah. people like, you know, who went under the water in submersibles, like Phil Newton. I I met, you know, James Cameron, you know, like I look back and I go, you know, and what what separates all of us who are into this is at the heart of it, we love storytelling and we want to be a part of that tradition. So we tell the stories and we let storytellers tell their stories. Well said, brother, well said. Uh, and uh, I, I, I really love the way you expressed all of that. I, and two things that you've said within this closing section of the show that I've really responded to very strongly was A, the, the analogy between yourself and Tanta Emulu or Tintin and Snowy, you know, it's such, such a, I've never thought of it that way before, but of course, he's a journalist who travels the world within the comic book medium. I'm going to use that myself. And it's one of two things you've said I'm going to use myself because I'm going to say farewell to you as Mark Asworth, Asworth, my friend, writer, producer, and the man who knitted his own parachute on the way down, which I think is such a wonderful expression, such a wonderful expression. I'm amazed I haven't stolen it from somebody else before now, <laughs> but I'm going to use it from now on because that is, as you know, it's also how I feel. And, uh, and I think your expression of that has been fascinating and it's just been such a great deal of fun, as it always is, chatting with you, brother. I, me to you. Thank you so much. This is a real honor. So glad to be part of this. And uh, we must do it again. We'll we, will another do, we, we will do it again, Mark, because there's a whole there's, there's, there's a whole avalanche of topics that we haven't even touched upon. Wonderful. Gotta go. Yeah. Love you. Talk Take to you care, soon. brother. Love you too. You've been listening to Hard Agree. 
This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan, and our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio. Hard Degree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner. 